Hey, podcast listener, are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. But really trying to learn marketing, learn how sales management works, mainly for uh, professional services, and then learn how operations work. You learn those pieces that will make you a far, far better consultant. And it's also fun. Welcome to the Smart Strategy for CPAs podcast, where I help you work less and make more. My name is Geraldine Carter. As more and more CPAs make the shift to advisory, one question that's coming up again and again is how do I run CFO advisory kind of meetings? What's the agenda? What am I showing my clients? What are the KPIs? What are we talking about? Your meetings are, of course, great opportunities to add value to your clients, increase their clarity, and help them better understand what's happening and make better decisions in their businesses. Here today to talk with me about how to hold great advisory or CFO meetings is my guest, Mark Gandy. Mark has been working as a part-time CFO for more than 20 years, and he's made every mistake in the book, and he knows exactly how to run a fractional CFO meeting. Mark, Welcome to the Smart Strategy for CPAs podcast. Geraldine, it's an honor to be here. I'm also a little nervous to talk about all these mistakes as well. <laughs> well. Mistakes is exactly how we learn how to do things well, right? So those of us who are unwilling to make mistakes will just not get as far along. So let's jump in with this question of how do we hold effective meetings when we make this shift to advisory? So give us just a high level of where the business owner is coming from and what are the things that they most need to know? Well, so when someone says that's a good question, it means they are stalling. But <laughs> I, it's going to be contextual, right? It depends on where it depends on where you are in the relationship. Is this a financially centric type of meeting? Uh, every CFO, or excuse me, every CEO I meet with weekly, we have a standing meeting. And frankly, some of those discussions are somewhat ad hoc. Now, I just had a financial huddle with one CEO and his leadership team. There's about nine of them, and there were two other owners, and we just went through the financials. And I don't even start with page one. I'll just pick what I think the highlights are. I'll, I'll look at it. How would a journalist, a financial journalist, look at some of these numbers? And plus, I get to ask a lot of questions. But when I'm meeting with a CEO one-to-one, Typically, every quarter, there may be a, what's the spread for this quarter, or what's the big objective? So that, that will basically be really what we're, we're talking about. We don't always hit the financials head on that much, because usually the issues are either marketing related, they may be sales related, they may be operations related. 
But if you were to pin me down, and if you were to say, Mark, talk to these 10 accountants who want to do this type of work, I would say, draw a square, and in that square, draw a cross. And then in the upper right-hand corner, what's the objective for the quarter? That's number one. And you may not always bring up the objective, but we know what the big objective is for the next 90 days. Now, down in the lower right-hand corner, we'll usually look at what are the health metrics that need to be addressed. And I may not even bring anything up unless there's an issue. So every, and I'm smiling as I say this, but every CEO, when you have a great month or a great week, that's, that's a signal. No, it isn't. Uh, it, you, you need about eight or nine weeks in a row of those, that same level of performance before it's a signal. So we'll look at the health metrics. Is there anything that sticks out? We'll address those. So that's the lower right-hand quadrant. As you start to move over from six o'clock to nine o'clock, those are typically the people issues. And I'm a big believer in what's called the 10, 30, 60 rule. So the, the 10, 30, 60 rule is essentially 10% of any change is gonna be all about the data, the numbers. And the 30% is all about the new process or whatever it is that we're trying to, 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 to click on all four or six cylinders. The 60% is all about behavior. So most of the issues I've learned over the 20 years, it's not because we're terrible at numbers, it's not because we're terrible at process, it's because of behavioral issues. So most of the issues I deal with with CEOs, it's, it's a behavioral issue. It's just getting people engaged, getting people excited. And then that last quadrant from nine o'clock to 12 o'clock is, what do we need to be talking about? What do we need to be focusing on over the next week or the next month? That's kind of in the back of my brain, in my mind, as I think about meetings. But I've been doing this for so long. A lot of these CEOs become friends, really good friends. And so we'll just pick up in the middle. It's almost like if you were to participate in my meetings, it'd be like, it sounds like we're starting in the middle of a meeting, but it's, we're so much on the same page. And that's the key with the CEO. It's a special relationship. I'm not in the advisory business. I'm in the relationship business. So that, that's a long-winded answer. Does that sound good? Yeah, so that's an excellent answer and a somewhat unexpected answer because I think where a lot of people's heads go is what KPIs should I be showing them and what should be on the dashboard if I'm building them a dashboard. And so their minds are very much in the numbers. And what you're saying is that the numbers are but 10%, the data, the rest is, you know, 30% is process, 60% behavior. So I think that changes the nature of what listeners to this podcast are going to be thinking about in terms of, you know, what they're going to be talking about in their meetings. So let's go to the first quadrant objective, um, the objectives for Q1. When I ask CPAs and they come to me, they're like, you know, I have this client who has this problem, what should be in my proposal? And I ask them, well, what do you, what does the client want to do with their business? What are they trying to do? And they're like, I don't know. And I say, well, they, you know, climbing through 10,000 feet, are they wanting to maintain cruising altitude? Are they getting set up to sell? What, what are they doing? And one thing that commonly gets overlooked is what is the objective? What's the business owner trying to achieve? And what you're saying is this is quadrant one. This is where you start. So can you expand a little bit on this conversation around objectives? Absolutely. There is, a, I think, some of the people who, by the way, I love your show. 
I think some of the people may be familiar with Dan Sullivan of the Strategic Coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan has what's called the the DOS conversation, and I love it. D is dangers, O is opportunities, S is in strengths, and I don't like to use other people's stuff verbatim, so I'll kind of add my words to it. The D dangers. What's the emotional word uh, behind dangers? It's it's fear, and fears can be very they can paralyze people. What I like to think of is what is keeping that owner, him or her, up at night? What's keeping them from wanting to come to the office? So if we start looking at the emotional aspect, what's the problem? I'll start with from there. And a lot of times it's, it's a people issue. If it's not a people issue, it's either going to be marketing, sales, or operations. And by the way, if you want great cash flow, don't go downstream, go upstream. If you want better cash flow, marketing is either not working, sales isn't working, or or ops or customer service is, is failing or flailing. So in terms of the objective, we'll just look at what do you want to accomplish. Uh, if this is a, a new relationship, that's for, for me fun because there may be a hundred things and that's where the the chief executive in terms of financial person can start helping with maybe this is a better priority or this is a better priority. But if you've been in the relationship for three, five, six years, I have some clients that are 20 years old. We look at each quarter, each six months as kind of mile markers. And you have an engineering background, so you kind of kind of think about what's that next mile marker we're trying to achieve. And that way it keeps business a little bit more fun instead of just going through the motions. But the objective, I usually start out with the emotional aspect is what's keeping this person up at night or what's making them really uh, frustrated to where business becomes a little bit more fun for them. Gotcha. Okay. Let's go to the next quadrant then health metrics, because I think that listeners are probably going, just give me the data. Like at least let me hang my hat on some data before we get into the emotional stuff. So what comprises the 10% of data that would be most important that CPAs who are new to this kind of meeting would want to give themselves some kind of structural familiarity around? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm smiling as you as you asked that question because I have a, a, about a five-minute, a ten-minute slide deck uh, that I use, and everyone says, can we go through that again? But all it is is just a simple, it's, it's a simple workflow so how now I realize not all business is perfectly linear, but let's take a professional services firm. Uh, you typically need to go find clients. So I call that finding. And then now you have to qualify them, meet with them. I call that getting. And then once they become a client, I call that doing. So I have three keywords of business, finding, getting, doing. Now, when you flesh that out a little bit, you may may have six, seven key bullet points in that value chain, and it's that way for every client. But finding, getting, doing, once I figure that out, what are the two or three most important activities of finding? What are the two to three most important activities of getting? And then what are the two to three activities of doing? Well, if I know my activities, now I know what to keep score with. So maybe in terms of finding, maybe I have some marketing system to where it's going to give me eight to 10 leads uh, per week or per month. Now, I also have a system called the 2X, uh, the the power of 2X. 
So if that's the case, can we double it? Can we, is it possible to double it? So we're always looking at ways, we're looking at that value stream, look at the activities, the key activities, and then what, what do we want to keep score up? We also then determine what should be proper performance. So we let the value stream of the business dictate what the numbers should be that we're looking at. And then of course the financials, to me that's just, to me that's the garbage can because all the key numbers inflow into of the financials. In my world, we do financial modeling. So all the numbers flow through the financial model, which then flow through the, the, the financials. So that's the way I look at the, the, I don't use the term KPIs, I just say important numbers, the key numbers. Where my head is going here is back to what you said just a minute ago, looking at marketing, looking at sales, if you want to improve your cash flow, go upstream. One challenge that is sort of endemic to this industry is because when you get a CPA license, you hang your shingle, people need their taxes done, you hang it up, your phone rings, you hustle for a year or two, you fill your client roster, and you've got clients but it's done primarily through hustling and just by virtue of being a CPA and taxes need to get filed. I mean, all of us have blind spots in our business, right? And one place that I think is common for CPAs where they just haven't learned along the way is how to market their business effectively because they haven't had to learn how because their phone just rings. They're lucky, (laughs) but it ends up being a problem to not learn the skill of marketing and sales because now here you are, going into meetings, talking about swimming upstream marketing and sales. But if you yourself haven't had the experience in your own business, what are you going to be able to bring to the table? So can you address that? Yes. And you've unwittingly addressed something that I've written about. I have a book coming out soon. And one, I'm a big believer that, first of all, can, can I, before I answer that question, can I tell you what the definition of a CFO is? Yeah, please. One of the definitions or one of the requirements should be that you should be able to, and this may be controversial, but it's a strong opinion, you should be able to step into the CEO's position for one whole year, and then after that year's up, you're happy to go back. Oh, by the way, sales went up a little bit, profits went up a little bit, uh, even the value of the business may have gone up a little bit. Now, you may say, well, why wouldn't he or she want to keep being the CEO? Well, I don't know if you remember the 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 former, I can't remember, he's a Roman or a Greek, but Cincinnatus, uh, he, he was a famous uh, a general. And then when the war was over, he went back to being a farmer. And so great CFOs should be able to run a business, but then go back. So that means they need to understand marketing. They need to understand sales. They need to understand operations. And that's something I've had to self-teach myself over the past uh, 20 years. And just getting in and making, that's where I've talked about uh, making mistakes, but really trying to learn marketing, learn how sales management works, mainly for uh, professional services, and then learn how operations work. That You learn those pieces that will make you a far, far better consultant. And it's also fun. But And by the way, there's nothing wrong with being uh, sent, you know, intense on financials, analysis, plan. That's good. But if you want to go to that next level, you do need to learn those other aspects, and that's going to take some time. This is excellent because this is not at all where I was expecting this conversation to go. 
So, and I think it takes the pressure off of what you're, what I'm hearing you say, I think takes the pressure off of the CPA converting to CFO, having to know, having to like somehow bring all the right numbers and all the right financial understanding and all the right data with all the right dashboards in all the right bar graphs and histograms and present it all perfectly as if that is going to be the thing that makes the light bulb go off. Whereas, you know, what you're saying is much more, no, it's about, you know, what is on the CEO's mind? What's bringing revenue into the business? Um, let's talk about the process piece before we get to the behavior piece, which I can't wait for. <laughs> when you say 30% is process, what's that mean? Process is how does work go from raw material uh, to finished goods? I'll give you a perfect example. I don't think they're listening. So one of my clients, they work in the vehicle leasing industry. And, and by the way, I think if you want to be in this business of being a CFO, you need to hang out with your clients as much as possible. So I will attend, I'll just show up, whether it's virtually or physically in, in meetings, monthly, weekly meetings or monthly meetings. One of the meetings that was being held was what's called the damage, damage claim reserves uh, meeting. And again, this is a vehicle leasing. Th think of an enterprise that has maybe thousands of vehicles, well, at any given time, there may be a thousand of them that are injured and they have to be fixed. They have to go to the hospital and, and get bandages and get shots. And now we can put them back out on the road to be leased again. Well, I went to a meeting and there was a list of cars on a Word document. Well, first of all, the, the, the CEO wrote it all up and I found out there's not really a good process. So just observing that, I thought, what if we did these three things? Here's a way to track the data better. The name of the game is to get the vehicles, once they're out of service, get them back into service as quickly as possible at the lowest possible price or cost. Well, it turns out about 60 days later, our COO is, is glommed onto that. So we've improved our process. So I think the key is just looking at some of the key uh, processes in the business and you, you will find, I'm just confident, any of the people who are listening, there's some really bad, I don't know if I can use the word crappy, but there's some really bad processes in place. And I, this is opinion, accountants are really good at process flow. They're really good at, that's not, that's, that's waste, so let's get rid of that. So that's what I mean is I will try to, a new client, I'll try to look at, what are the five to six most important processes in the business? And I'm not looking at how to speed it up. I'm just looking where the waste is. And again, I think a lot of us, we have natural instincts for that. So that's what I mean. Again, onboarding a new client, especially professional services firms, can be messy. You know, how can we improve that? Um, you know, customer service can be clunky. Uh, so there are... I could just go on and on, but I think just looking at find the six, seven most critical processes from a customer's perspective, look at from their perspective and they'll look at, do we need to clean this up, uh, fix this up? I've got like a half a dozen or so COO playbooks I'll create just to help them to think about, here are the tools you need to be thinking about just to have better throughput 
uh, in the business. What this is making me think so far is it's far less complicated than it needs to be, right? And some of the solutions that we can help our clients find are far more hiding in plain sight than we might realize, especially if we're looking for, you know, it's got to be complex. It's got to be hard. It's got to be financial. It has to be like, I've got to come up with this giant, brilliant aha for my client that was, you know, only I could derive. Whereas what it sounds like is, no, take a step back and look for the obvious things, which is where are they wasting money? Where are they hemorrhaging cash? Where is the process just completely log jammed and things aren't getting through to the other side and so on? So let's go over to the behavior part, because I think that this is something that may not even be on folks' radar. 60% behavior, what's in that 60%? We've read a lot, and I don't know if we owe the Gallup a big pat on the back for this, but their engagement, employee engagement is just such, I hate to use the term buzzword, but it's, 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 we have a heightened sense of awareness toward employee engagement. So I, I just like to ask the question, why are people uh, better engaged? Is it because it's just a boring place to work? Is it not inspiring? Uh, maybe you have a bad leadership, bad supervisors. So I just like to look at what's causing bad behavior. When I think of ba- bad behavior, I think of ABC. Uh, B stands for behavior. Well, what came before the behavior and then what came after the behavior? Uh, a lot of times, I think some CEOs, and I hate to use, a bl- use blanket statements, but I think a lot of a lot of leaders have carrot stick, uh, you know. Let's do this, and then we'll get better behavior. But what if we had uh, what what happens before the behavior? Well, what if we just had a better work environment? Uh, what if the work is more stimulating? Uh, we want staff to want to come to work, be proud, be excited. So, what are the things we can do before bad behavior ever occurs? And I'm thinking in some cases it can be as subtle as just boredom. So what can we do to make work more interesting? And that's what I mean by behavior. Uh, I'll just look this up. Uh, DCOM, D-C-O-M, DCOM. Just do it. Just do a Google search. I think DCOM. If, if you're listening to this, walking or running or running an errand, you can remember DCOM. D is a dog. C-O-M. Just do a research on that. Look at what those letters stand for. And the key is, is what's the direction that we're going in? Just think of eight, nine men, women in a boat rowing. They're all rowing in the same direction. They're going at the same speed. You got a coxswain uh, in the front of the boat saying where to go or slow down or whatever. That's part of the direction. And I'm just, again, I just, we cannot underestimate the the behavior aspect because a lot of times we've got a bad apple uh, on the seat that needs to be addressed. So that's the behavior part. And that's something I've had to work on and study the last, especially the last 10, 12 years, is I start looking at what's what's keeping us from moving the needle. It's usually people issues, not necessarily process or data. Okay, so while you were telling us that, I Googled DCOM, D-C-O-M, like Mary? Yes. All right, and I'm not finding anything. So give us the quick and dirty, what's it stand for? DCOM is direction. And I always say, because I, I modify everything, DCOM is direction, uh, C is capabilities, uh, O is typically the, the obstacles, and I believe M may be uh, the motivators, what motivates. Now, again, I, I have what's called modified DCOM, so I'll show business owners 
what this DCOM is. And by the way, I think it's also trademarked. But then we'll look at how do you want to maybe adjust or apply. But usually the direction, you know, how many businesses will you go into, not you, but uh, accountants, CFO, part-time CFOs, and they'll ask the question, they can just survey every employee, What's what direction are we going in? And sometimes you will not get a very clear response to that. But just knowing the direction, where are we going and how are we doing, by what means, and to me, that is a huge, huge starting point. Mm-hmm. Getting all your oars in the water at the same time, pulling together. So I think a lot of CPAs are when, you know, when we say the word behavior 60%, um, they might think to themselves, ah, you know, I'm a numbers person. I'm not schooled in, like, I don't want to be helping my clients with staff behavior. And they may have a sort of visceral reaction to the notion of it. So how do we help them think about it in their minds so that they don't put themselves on the hook for being the ones to help address staff issues, that they're more just thinking about the cost of bored and disengaged staff and how the CEO, because it's their company, can address it. My first controllership position, and by the way, this again could be controversial to say this, But I do believe anyone getting into the CFO business should have five to 10 years experience as a CFO or at being an elite controller. My first controllership position, I had 40 people working for me. So people above me thought he can do this. So I just had to learn some basics, the basics. The golden rule is a good starting point. But I I had a triangle and at the base of the triangle, I had respect for myself, respect for the other person, and the respect for the business. Respect your because if you can't respect yourself, it's going to be hard to respect other people. So you have to respect yourself. You have to learn how to respect other people, and then you have to respect the business. You don't badmouth it. You 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 appreciate. You protect. You do what you can to help the business. Because I came from a controllership position, having that many people work for me, it became a little bit easier because. There can be pride, uh, lack of humility, ego, envy, backstabbing. I mean, just a lot of the things. And then that's why when I work with these business owners, I kind of know what it's like when you've had people that can be frustrating uh, or it's frustrating to you. So then as I'm going to clients and part of my model is being on site so I can observe, I want to replicate what I've been with an employer as a W-2 CFO, as I am with as a contract CFO. So I like to be there. And I can just observe some really poor behavior. One of my favorite coaching tools is I'll take a blank piece of paper and I'll draw two circles. And one is friendly, one is firm. Then I'll take those two circles and make the friendly part be bigger than the firm circle. What kind of relationship is that? And then we'll look at the firm circle is too big and the friendly circle is too small. What kind of relationship is that? So we talk about trying to be, you know, friendly and firm, you know, equally. So I have just a handful of tools that will help me to help other coaches because I'm not just working with the CEO. I'm working with other managers and they're looking for help. So when you ask how how can we get other CPAs, accountants, 
to be more observant or thoughtful of behavioral aspects, I think what's going to happen is you're going to become more valuable. But not only that, your clients are going to start working a lot better if they take some of these tools that you're presenting them uh, very, very seriously. Okay, great. I love that. This is all really helpful in, I think, helping our listeners, accountants, and CPAs think about what this meeting actually is for and what it can do, and that it's perhaps a good bit less numbers-focused than we may have anticipated. We have a few minutes left. I do want to still dig in briefly to the mechanics of the quantity of how many clients you have and how many meetings you have, like what is your maximum capacity? Because I think that this is going to take for CPAs to make the shift requires getting out of having 500 or a thousand clients and thinking about having a dozen or so. So can you talk about how many clients you have at a given time um, and what your capacity looks like in terms of actual numbers? Well, up until this past week, I have two new clients this week, which I don't like. I only like to take on one new client per year. But I, to me, a sweet spot is about seven clients. So once upon a time, I had up to 18, 19 clients, and it's just too many. Uh, one of my first CFOs that I coached in my practice called Three Agent CFO, I'll ask him, how, how many clients do you have? He says 17, and my answer to him is, you're not, you're not billing enough. You're not charging enough. And he laughs and says, yeah, my wife says the, the same thing. But to me, the perfect sweet spot is about seven. Now, that gives me a chance to be on a couple of paid board of directors. Uh, I also like special projects. I love, I mean, even though it's not repeatable, I just love doing special projects like financing, complex financing, uh, an acquisition project. Uh, I had a CFO from St. Louis, Missouri. I mean, a W-2, he knows, he I, hears I can coach uh, other CFOs. So I'm working with him uh, right now. So that's a one-off project that will last about nine weeks. So, but having them ongoing, and these are long-term relationships that, man, some of these relationships go back 20 years, 12 years, nine years, but about seven of those. I'll have every once in a while, Geraldine, a feud. It's like, I just don't feel like I'm adding more any more value because the, the crux of my practice is teaching. It's not necessarily doing. I want to get everything out of my brain and teach them. To me, they need to have their own CFO. They need to have their own controller. So my goal is to get them financially savvy uh, and prep them for that, that next level. Even though my client base in terms of revenue goes up to $100 million, I have one client just passed hundred million dollars just a couple of months ago, so well, that's kind of kind of cool. But that that's seven to I, nine is pushing it. So are you having weekly meetings? Yes. Okay, so you've got nine weekly meetings. I even have a couple, Geraldine, where I have two per week, and one in one of those meetings, the CFO even joins us, even joins us as well. So I have, I do. By the way, I do have some clients that have CFOs. Uh, on board too, and also uh, very good controllers. But I have one where it's two a week, and then most of them one a week. I have a few where we're we're in such a we're in so in sync with one another. We don't have set meetings. We may have a couple a month, but it's like I may get three phone calls a week, or I may get a phone call on the weekend. So it's very ad hoc. And again, we're in the relationship business. So a relationship like that is, it took years to, to get there. 
And I think that's a relationship we've had since 2009. So how much of the keying in of data are you doing? Or do you do any or none? Almost none. Almost none. So you get you get reports and everything delivered to you. Yeah. And, and I'll repurpose it. I use some cool tools. I, I'm a Tableau. Uh, I love using Tableau in my practice. And I think some people are probably familiar with it. I use a tool called uh, Quantrix, which is a very complex financial modeling tool. So I will ask for data in a certain format. It might take me two, three minutes to get it uploaded to those systems. But no, I'm not doing accounting work. I'm not doing any grunt work whatsoever. That That's a no-no for me, <laughs> mainly just because I don't like doing it. Okay. So to the extent that you're comfortable answering, what are your what's your typical price range for a client? It varies. Again, great question. It varies anywhere from, uh, I have a, a really old client. All we do is we just meet, uh, but it, it's about $1,000 per month. And I have clients that go all the way to $7,500. Uh, per month. Uh, I have several that $2,500 to $4,500 uh, per month. And a lot of it, I just go by feel. I ask myself the question, can they 10x this investment? And can they 20x this investment? And I, I have this little meeting in my head. I don't think so. So I'm, I'm really going through. Like one of the new clients, I kept thinking, this guy's sharp. I don't know what value so my goal is to increase his net worth, uh, him and his family. I, I want to see the employees gain out of this relationship. So I actually decided not to bill him as much because I'm not convinced. And we even had a candid conversation about that. And because and the reason I share that because I'm not cheap. So, but but you're anywhere from a thousand dollars, and that's to $7,500 per month. I've had one client a couple of years ago, I was working for a private equity uh, uh, group and I was doing $9,500 per month, but that work was pretty intense. Okay, and what's the revenue range of these businesses typically? Are we talking like 100,000, a million, 10 million, up to 100 million? I think our sweet spot, my sweet spot's gonna be between that three and $20 million range. Uh, two of my clients, their goal is to get to 100 million. So one of my, I don't put this on my website, but I love working with scale ups. So if you want to scale up from 10 million to 100 million dollars, I'm going to get you. I'm going to help you there. Um, and even if I need to find help to get there, I will. But probably uh, several years ago, I had half of my clients for about 25 million dollars or more. Right now, I'm just in a cycle to where most of them are under 20 million. I have one right now that just crossed $100 million, and I've retired from one client that's around 70, some about uh, 70 million. Uh, but again, most are between a three and 15. And again, that's a good sweet spot because they don't have the financial capability uh, that that these bigger organizations uh, do. Okay, that's all really helpful for listeners to kind of understand where the stuff starts to make sense. So a couple more quick questions here, and then we'll wrap. Because you don't do any keying in of data, what are your margins? What are my margins? Yeah, what's your problem? Like, so a lot, I think a lot of CPAs have margins in the 10s, teens, maybe 40s max. But where I'm going is, you know, when you get out of keying in of data, what happens to your profit margins? See, I... I if you feel comfortable, if you don't no, feel comfortable answering that question, you can opt out. Let me just, let me work backwards. In uh -huh. my industry, you should be making 
about $300,000 per year, period. Mm -hmm. So I don't even think in terms of margins. I do have some stuff. Like when I take on a new client, uh, I will have a few out-of-pocket costs, such as I, I'm a certified with Colby. So I have everyone, to, and I don't charge for that. Uh, I have some servers space, uh, like uh, like Tableau and, and uh, Quantrix, and I put some of their files on my server that I've purchased in advance. That's just part of the pricing. So I would assume if I actually did the math, if I if I uh, if I followed Gap, my gross margins are probably ninety eight percent. So a lot of my costs are are general and admin. No, I'm serious. Someone asked, you read a lot of books. Yeah, I spent $6,000 on books from Amazon last year. That's one of my big expenses. I do buy a lot of software. I love software. I love hardware. So I have a lot of discretionary cash that our kids are old, so I can spend a lot of money. So, so all I'll just say is that you don't think gross margin. Think net margin, and your net margin should be about 80 to 85 percent but that's because i'm a solopreneur i don't have a staff of seven or so my answer would be different if i had maybe other staff uh, but i again i've been doing this for 20 years and there's just not a lot of expense mine is more because i spend money on expensive software and i read a lot of books so i love discretionary cash talk to me about how much and this is our last question how much discretionary time do you have can I pass? <laughs> <laughs> you might like work. I work a lot of hours. Do you because you have to or because you like to or? I love my work. If, if, you ask, if you ask my kids, if you ask my wife, they say Mark works too many hours. But I love what I do. I mean, I love, you know, this afternoon after this, this interview, I'm going to go out on one of my farms and mow. But you know what I'm going to be thinking about? I'm going to be thinking about Osage food products. I'm going to be thinking about uh, so do you rent a truck? I'm going to be thinking about uh, the Ranger Group. I'm going to be thinking about all these businesses and just I'll be, that's why I, I care about these. These people become family. They become friends. And and so discretionary time, I mean, I, I get the time off that I need to, but maybe not as much as I should. Okay. But it sounds to me like you've got a choice about it and you're in control of the spigot. You're not backed up against deadlines all the time, wondering how you're ever going to get out. Yes. You know, every once in a while, I mean, if I have someone that's working on an acquisition, they've decided to go add a new product line, uh, or one one business wants to get into this new manufacturing line, which happened uh, a couple of years ago, every once in a while, you'll have several big projects from different clients coming together at the same time. That can be frustrating. And you just, we all do. We all learn how to figure out how to make it work. And the good news is because these are long-term relationships, I'll tell them I'm working on this as well. So just give me a, I'll need a little grace. And it's like they get it. And they're just appreciative of having the relationship to begin with. So sometimes I just have to tell them, here's what I'm dealing with. So if I'm a little slow on this, they understand. Mark, this has been so super valuable. It's been a real treat to go right to the source and hear from an expert who's been doing this for years about how to do a great job and how to build a business around it. Mark Gandy, thank you so much for coming on the Smart Strategy for CPAs podcast. Geraldine, this has been a, an honor. Did this year's tax season nearly kill you? Do you desperately want to be somewhere different a year from now, but you feel overwhelmed and lost about what to do to change things? The next time you find yourself wondering what to do, 
head over to shethinksbigcoaching.com to check out the results clients get from working together. Then take the next small logical step and subscribe to my daily drip newsletter. You'll get one easily digestible tip a day on how to position your business, how to price services, and how to sell outcomes so that you can be more profitable, get your time back, and get off the tax hamster wheel for once and for all. That URL again is shethinksbigcoaching.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.